0: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for all the gifts that you do give us. Most of all, Lord, the gift of your presence, we need it more than anything else. We ask, Lord, that we would know your presence this morning in a way that is unique and special, that we would be open to it, that your word and your presence and your love and your wisdom would come down from heaven and would light our hearts and fill our souls and our bodies and give us the power we need to follow you Uh, and to bear the marks of faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Go ahead and turn to James 1. It's in your Bibles. It's in your bulletins. We're starting a new sermon series uh, this morning. It's going to be a sermon series we'll be in in uh, June and July, uh, part of August. And it's called The Mark of Faith, The Mark of Faith. If we have a living relationship, a living union with Jesus Christ, it's going to leave a mark on our lives and on our character and on our community and on our city. Um, The author of this book is very likely... Jesus's half-brother, James, uh, the son of Mary and Joseph. Um, James was not one of the original 12 disciples, but he was a servant of Christ, and uh, not just his brother, but someone who actually learned from and apprenticed under Jesus as his Lord. Um, So he describes himself in verse one as this. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine talking about your own brother that way. Um, but he did, uh, because Jesus is the Lord, and James followed him as uh, a disciple. And then he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, by the time James wrote this letter, he had become a leader in the early church. And so a letter like this would have been distributed around the Roman Empire, most likely received from, uh, from people who were born into Judaism. They were Jews, and then they came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but they were, tra- they were uh, scattered, uh, most likely against their own wills, uh, to uh, just around the Roman Empire. Now, if you want to know the heart, if you want to know kind of the spiritual heart of James's letter, you can read the Magnificat in Luke one verses forty six through fifty five. Don't turn there now, um, but this was his mother Mary's song that she sang when Gabriel came to uh, announce that Mary would bear Jesus. And if you look at the Magnificat and you look at the book of James, there's a lot of themes that run through both uh, of, these, uh, of these pieces here. Mary saying, "'My soul magnifies the Lord "'and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, "'for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. "'He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. "'He has brought down the mighty from their thrones.'" and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, just consider for a moment that this is the woman who raised Jesus and James. And maybe the Magnificat was like, could have even been their bedtime song. Or maybe it was like a morning thing that they, they said at the breakfast table, like, are you gonna say mom's song? Otherwise, you know, no oatmeal. Um, who knows? But what we know is that The sons, her sons ended up, one of them preached the Sermon on the Mount and one of them wrote the book of James and you can see a lot of the same thing, themes. Um, So humility, theme of humility, uh, theme of active obedience or rejoicing in the character of God or patience and suffering, um, honoring the poor and the outcast. So uh, this is a really beautiful letter. It comes from Jesus's own family. It comes from one of his disciples, and we're just going to watch what are the marks of faith that James is putting before us to uh, show in our own life. In the first section of this letter, what we're studying this morning, James is going to introduce what we might call the diamond of all the virtues, the diamond of all of the virtues. It's a virtue that has great value in God's eyes, but it cannot be attained without some pressure and discomfort. Um, Jesus wanted this diamond virtue. The early church wanted this diamond virtue. Um, his disciples wanted this diamond virtue. In fact, if you ask the persecuted church today, How can we pray for you? they will respond, well, You can pray for this diamond virtue in my own life. Um, they don't pray to be, uh, for their circumstances to change, as wonderful as that would be. They want something more precious than, than that instead. It's a costly, precious resource that will change your life. Um, On the day of judgment, James says, it's people with this diamond virtue that will be crowned in a special way. Um, But it's going to be a challenge for us to grow in this diamond virtue because it is highly prized before God, but it is not highly prized in our day. It is not celebrated. It is not cherished. Um, the architecture of modern life is designed in such a way that we never have to develop this diamond virtue. Life is structured in such a way that we never have to face the pressures and, and, uh, to, to, to attain this, um, this virtue. So what is this virtue, and how can we possess it ourselves? We get a clue in verse 2, which offers some counterintuitive advice to all of us. Uh, verse 2, count it all joy. My brothers and sisters, when you meet trials or when you fall into trials of various kinds, one scholar translates verse two like this, consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. Now we don't have to look far for tests and challenges, do we? Um, It's not going to be a problem for us to be able to think about tests and challenges. What is coming at you from all sides? in your life right now. I think that medical challenges and trials can be some of the most difficult. Anything from a torn ACL to a cancer diagnosis and everything in between, the hospital visits, the hospital bills, um, the surgeries, the rehab, the prehab, the special diets, medical challenges can be some of the worst uh, trials that just sort of come at us unexpectedly. You know, relational challenges can come out of nowhere and be so deeply distressing because they hit right at the core of our life. Um, Some of us have, right now, we've got conflicts at work. We've got conflicts in the home or with our extended family. Um, Maybe some of you have endured some spiritual challenges as well. You just know that there's a battle that you're fighting that is on a level that's just beyond your immediate seen circumstances. You realize that you're fighting a spiritual battle right now You're fighting for your very soul, which is different than fighting for your body. You're fighting for your soul, um, and a lot of times this comes in the form of battling temptation that's kind of hitting you against your will, and you're saying no to something again and again, and that's a stressor, to say no to something again and again, to to fight temptation. Um, Some of us are experiencing cultural challenges. We're unsure how to live faithfully as Christians, in this world and in the city as culture changes very quickly before us and it's becoming more and more acute, how can I be faithful to Jesus and stay meaningfully and lovingly connected to my neighbors? Um, trials come in all kinds, okay? And they don't have to be profound to be annoying. It can be potholes and headaches and being uh, dealing with a flooding basement to being underemployed to being disappointed with God, to dealing with your own anxiety and anger, to just the endless rain. (laughs) And James says, consider it actually a pure gift. Who says that? A pure gift when you walk into, when you're kind of sort of walking into a room of trials and just painful circumstances. Um, We've learned to relate to trials as an enemy and as a nuisance, and yet James here encourages us to see them as a cause for joy, as gifts. Now, why would trials be gifts? Verse 3 takes us deeper into this question. For you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance is the diamond virtue. Endurance is is uh, the mark of faith. The heat of all of those trials and challenges applies pressure to our faith in Christ. It feels unbearable. It feels like death. We're not in control. And yet something beautiful emerges from all that pressure and all of that stress. Something that we did not possess before, and it's the diamond virtue of endurance. There's no other way to get it. In his book, The Second Mountain, uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks notes this. Character is not something you, you build sitting in a room thinking about the differences between right and wrong and your own willpower. Character emerges from our commitments. And this is just one way to understand how endurance, that diamond virtue, is gained. Endurance is not gained in theory, but in practice. Endurance is that diamond quality virtue that we get after undergoing heat and pressure. One person noted to me, if you put a piece of coal on a table and left it there for a thousand years, it would never become a diamond. It needs heat, it needs pressure. What is James saying? He's, he's saying that the trials we're walking into, the things that we are trained to see as nuisances are gifts because there's no other way for our character to be turned into the diamond quality of endurance, which is what God is looking for in each one of us. The writers of scripture uh, prized endurance as, as jewelers prized diamonds. Paul lists endurance as a fruit of the spirit and a pathway into character and a pathway into hope. Think about this. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus is going around to the seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3, he's correcting them and he's encouraging them. Um, He commends the church in Philadelphia for showing endurance, and he encourages them to continue, and he says this, so that no one may seize your crown. Isn't that interesting? He does not want the church in Philadelphia to forfeit their crown, and so he says, endure. Endure. Endure as you've been enduring. Uh, The author of Hebrews tells us to run with endurance the race set before us as we look to Jesus who went before us. And then Paul uses a special name for God at the end of Romans. He he refers to God as the God of endurance and encouragement. Isn't that a wonderful name for God? The God of all endurance and encouragement. In Christ, we see a God who ran his race faithfully and then jumps into the race with us and encourages us until we reach the finish line. He is a god of all endurance and encouragement. God has endured so much out of love for us, but he's also out of that place of endurance encouraging us. He's not a god of endurance and discouragement and picking on us as we go undergo our trials. He wants to help us. So God has endurance, Jesus had endurance, the early church Christian leaders prized endurance. The persecuted church prays for endurance, um, but we only get the diamond of endurance if we let the heat of our trials complete its process. Verse four, let, and let endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is commending to us here a, a type of spiritual wholeness, a spiritual completeness a well-rounded, completed maturity. He wants that for all of us. He knows that if the diamond of our life is going to sparkle on the final day in the presence of God, we cannot shortcut the process. Um, and he wants us uh, to bear up under the trials that God has allowed. So how do we do that? I think this is where the rubber meets the road, right? We all have these things going on that are, that are difficult, and we could name them now. Um, It's one thing to want those trials to produce the quality of endurance and to give us that virtue. It's another thing to work through all of the hazy details of how how to do that. Like, how do you do that? Think about all of the questions that come up if you want to endure trials and develop that diamond quality of endurance. Um, Most situations are very complex, right? And so we ask questions like, how do we, on the one hand, welcome our trials as a gift while also seeking to better our circumstances? Um, or how about this? How do we navigate trials so that we emerge stronger rather than weaker? Have you ever talked to someone, experienced someone where they're, they're on the other end of their trials, but they're kind of like bitter and, and they're kind of giving up and they're just discouraged and they're sort of throwing in the towel? And it's like, well... So how do we not get to that spot? What about this? When do we persevere in a difficult situation, difficult job, difficult relationship? And then when do we seek out a better situation for ourselves and those we love? When is it like time to end the really difficult job? When is it time to cut off communication with an abusive person? When is it, when is it time to kind of like draw boundaries around our life? Um, when is it time to speak When is the time to remain silent? What does faithfulness look like, right? All these questions that emerge when we begin to suffer. And here's how James might encourage us. If you want endurance, you've got all those questions. Look at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let her ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, meaning he doesn't insult you if you ask him. He's not a reproaching nitpicking, insulting God. Um, and it will be given to him. It will be given to her. So what's the trial that you're enduring right now? What's, what's uh, keeping you up at night? What's, what's uh, causing you stress in your body? Um, has it left you with some unanswered questions? Would you like wisdom from a kind and strong guide who wants your best? James tells us that God is generous to all people and he doesn't reproach us for asking him for wisdom. He's not a, an insulting heckler who, who, who uh, kind of like jeers at us from the sidelines, right? God is an encouraging coach who wants to bring out the best in us and complete our characters. He's got encouragement for us. He's got helpful direction for us. So turn to God. Coal doesn't become diamonds without God guiding the process. Uh, James goes on in verses six and seven, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So pretty quickly, we should ask the question, is James saying that if we have any spiritual doubts, we won't be heard? Because if that were true, I don't know if any of us would qualify for receiving wisdom from God. So I spent some time studying this question this week. The word for doubting here is a word uh, sort of for an inner dispute, um, a split within ourselves where I think what James is referring to is that we're asking God with our words for wisdom and strength, but our hearts aren't aligned with his heart, nor, does, nor do we have any intention of our hearts being aligned with his heart. And so we're giving God the words of like, would you give me wisdom? But our hearts have no de- desire to actually receive it. Sometimes over the years, I've asked my parents or other mentors for advice for what I should do. And I used words like, hey, I'd like your counsel on something, but that's not really what I wanted a lot of the time. I didn't exactly want their, their wisdom. I wanted their blessing or I wanted their money, <laughs> okay? Because um, I already had a plan of what I really wanted to do. This is why some, you know, like a wise mentor will respond to a conversation like that and they'll be like, hey, on a scale of one to 10, how much are you already gonna go in the direction that we're talking about here? Eh, like a nine-ish. Um, but there's no real sincerity. You don't really, like, do you want the wisdom? What if it goes against your intuitive sense of how the world should work? James wants us to align our words with our hearts and to ask God with a wholehearted sincerity and just going, I don't know the way to go, but you do. I don't know a way to endure this trial, but you do. To ask in faith, and here's what this could look like asking in faith, Father, I don't know how to endure this trial. I simply don't know what to do. I need your wisdom. I need your power. Listen, would you form endurance in me? Would you form completeness in me? I just, I'm going to put myself in your hands, Father, and I just don't know what to do. I'm going to wait for you to lead me and guide me. And then I think it means waiting on the Lord in silence, which is an actual thing that you can do. Um, You can sit before the Lord and think about the Lord. You can sit before the Lord and bring to him your question. It'll be a messy long while. And again, modern life is not aligned in the direction of silence and solitude in the presence of a holy God. But this is the kind of life, this is the, where the rubber meets the road in terms of receiving wisdom from God. It means actually listening to God. And it means listening open-heartedly to other people who are the Lord's ambassadors in your life. The closer we draw to God in our trials, the more He solidifies our souls with His endurance. And it's just a slow process. Without that, suffering is, will only, as James said, toss us around. We'll shape shift in the direction of whatever pressures are coming at us. But we won't mature and be complete. We'll be shaped by whatever uh, forces are most powerful in our life, whether that be the forces of tribalism or technology or pleasure, and it'll whip us around, and we won't be conformed to the image of Jesus. So here's another angle on this way of asking God for wisdom, of just kind of this wholehearted, empty-handed sincerity. James says, uh, starting in verse nine, "'Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, um, "'and the rich in his humiliation.'" Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, James, throughout his letter, is going to return again and again to the theme of money and status. For now, it's worth saying this, in light of where James is moving in this part of his letter... Um, When we're undergoing trials, money can substitute for prayer. And thus, money can substitute for endurance. In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Paul Miller warns against this. Uh, One of the subtlest hindrances to prayer is probably the most pervasive. In the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. Because we can do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Listen to this. He says, Money can do what prayer does, and it is quicker and less time consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God. When you are under stress, when you fall into trials of various kinds, what substitutes for prayer? Blank can do what prayer does and it is quicker and less time-consuming. Maybe it's not money for you. You know, other things can go in that blank. Productivity. Productivity can do what prayer does, and it is quicker and less time-consuming. Coffee can do what prayer does. Um, Google Maps can do what prayer, do you ever just open Google Maps because you don't know what else to do? Or is that just me? (laughs) Fill in the blank. Is it a good book? It is a glass of wine? Is it a clever post on social media? What fills in the blank? What allows you to be structurally independent of the presence and the wisdom of God when you're suffering? Uh, Now, these things are not bad in themselves, but taken as a whole, they can make us structurally independent of God, can't they? Modern life is designed to life hack our way out of trials. So it's worth asking, how much of our spiritual strength have we forfeited in the process of a life structurally independent of the presence and the help of God? We are rich in life hacks, but these fade away in the presence of God. That's James's point here. When we come to God, we do not come boasting in our wealth and in our achievements. We come in need. We come in need of God's help. We come in need of God to form in us that diamond quality of endurance. Here's what's at stake, verse 12. Verse 12 is at stake. Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, is this saying the only way for you to earn God's love and glory is through trying really hard? And I don't think that's the heart of James's message here. Um, If we're going to stand before God, having endured our trials, it will be 100% the grace of God, (laughs) okay? It will be 100% the grace of God, which we are burning up like jet fuel in the process (laughs) of being faithful to him. So grace is not going to freeze our obedience. Grace is going to free our obedience. You see the difference? When we endure the trials God has allowed, we do it out of love for him, we do it out of devotion for him, we do it with his power and strength. And on the other end of our trials and tests, we're gonna shine like glory. We will be like a transfigured church worshiping a transfigured Christ. And part of the glory refracting from our beings in that moment of transfiguration will be the diamond quality of endurance. That endurance will, will shine through all of the other virtues that shine on that day. James has communicated uh, the value of endurance. Endurance that it's meant to complete us and form us and perfect us. And he's shown us where to get it, enduring trials with God's help and wisdom. But I'm really grateful for where he takes us next, where where he rounds all of these thoughts out. Um, He takes us to a pure vision of God. And it's a vision that is going to help us worship this morning. You see, a lot of us get to the point where we can't even ask for wisdom anymore because we're just out of juice, because we're just waiting, because we are enduring the trial. And listen, the only place to go is, is worship at that point, to go right into the presence of God, to go right to the throne of grace and to worship the living God as he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And James is gonna correct a view of God that is, uh, is not true. He's gonna say, "Hey, you might think this; it's not true about God, so don't impugn God." And he's gonna say, "Verse thirteen: Let no one say when he is tempted," which is a word very close to the word for trial, and I think there's an overlap intentionally. "Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one." What's James saying? Well, in the words of one Scottish pastor, God is great at recycling, but he doesn't send the garbage. Now, maybe one of you can do that with a nice Scottish accent, but I'm not going to attempt it. God is great at recycling, it's his special talent, but he does not produce or send the garbage. God does not create evil, God does not create suffering. God is extraordinarily good at turning evil and suffering into glory, into endurance, into perfected character. I mean, consider what he did with a Roman cross, right? God did not invent torture. It doesn't come from God. God did not create evil. God did not create treachery and violence. Um, yet he redeemed it, he recycled it, and he brought life out of it. Okay, now we can project the garbage of this world onto the character of God because we're in pain and we want someone to blame, but it doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it true. God is skilled at recycling the garbage, but he didn't send it because God is thoroughly loving and kind and good. And he loves us. Verse 14 Uh, Each person is tempted when he is lured or she is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, this is a description of what happens in us, this disordered heart that leads to a disordered life. And when we have a disordered heart and a disordered life, we become unable to love people, right? Right? In the words of, uh, well, so here's a summary of how St. Augustine taught on this. We have all loved the wrong thing to the wrong degree in the wrong way with the wrong kind of love. And what God is forming in us is is an ordered heart, which is the ability to love the right thing in the right way to the right degree at the right time with the right kind of love. So even though we've messed that up, the God of all encouragement and endurance has been kind to us. Verse 16 and 17 describes the goodness of God. Do not be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers and sisters. Like, don't take a wrong view of God, guys. That's what he's saying. Don't let yourself be seduced by a, by a false vision of who God is. Verse 17, every good gift And every perfect present is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. On this Trinity Sunday, consider how the Father of lights gave a perfect and good gift from above in his son Jesus. Um, And his son Jesus, when he unites himself to us, commits himself to go through whatever we're going through. I recently heard a wonderful lecture by a church historian about the sufferings of the earliest church martyrs. And he said that one mark of the early church, and uh, this is something we we can celebrate without putting our expectations that God will have to copy it um, again and again in every generation. But one of the things that happened in the earliest years of the church was that as people faced their greatest hour of suffering and their greatest hour of sacrifice and the greatest horror of their life, because of their commitment and allegiance to Jesus. What would happen is that their union with Christ would take on a new form, and they would find that a lot of the uh, natural sufferings of the moment would be greatly reduced, that they would oftentimes have a vision of Jesus Christ and have a strong sense of his nearness and his presence, and a lot of times they would get a vision of the world to come. Now, we can read about this in Acts 7, at the end of Acts 7, when Stephen was being stoned. Right in the moment of his Uh, Of his death, when he was being stoned, but he was still conscious, what did he see? He saw the Son of Man standing up at the right hand of the Father on his behalf. And the horrors of the moment did not overwhelm him, that Jesus held him and that his union with Christ took on this special, beautiful form. That's the kind of gift that the Father of lights is ready to give. That's the kind of help that he gives us, the God of all endurance and encouragement shows up. And whether whether we feel it supernaturally or whether we feel it in a very mundane way, experience it in a very mundane way, listen, there's grace for the moment. There's grace for the moment. The moment for your faithfulness, there's grace for that moment. Young mothers out there, there's grace for the middle of the night. The great endurance The great marathon you're running, there's grace for that. Uh, People who are grieving a loss, there is grace for your grief. Struggling financially, man, there's going to be enough for you. There is grace for the the financial squeeze that you're in. Are you uh, taking a risk with the Lord that he's asked you to take? There's going to be grace for the moment that you step out and share your faith and engage with someone who does not yet know Jesus or who's interested in knowing more. Consider how the Father of Lights not only sent Jesus, but sent his life-giving spirit. Uh, Through his spirit, God himself lives inside of us, speaking to us, comforting us, healing us, and then giving us compassion, giving us grace, so that we actually can extend the encouragement of God to everyone around us who are enduring their own trials. He ends with verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The God of endurance and encouragement gave us life and breath. He is intent on us sharing his diamond quality of endurance. We are his diamonds in creation. The shining jewel of this this world. And so this morning, we have an opportunity in our trials to turn and worship the living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me pray for you all now. Father of lights, from whom comes good gifts, I pray that now your Holy Spirit would fall into this kiva, into this space, and you would meet us now. Lord, not just in truth, because we couldn't bear it without your presence. Would you give us your loving and life-giving presence on this Trinity Sunday, let us know that you are here. Lord, give us the, the, the power we need to worship you with all of our hearts. And we pray that as we do, Lord, that you would form the diamond quality of endurance in each one of us. And we pray that we would become a different person in your presence as we endure these trials. Give us the power to bear up under, not as an end in itself, Lord, uh, but so that we can stand before you, shining before you um, as a sign of the way that you were always with us. We pray this in Jesus' name.